0: Welcome to Neo-Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I sat down with John Gibbs to talk about academic populism. John is one of the hosts of the Spinoza Triad podcast and the Morning Break on Teachers Talk Radio. John recently retired from a 40-year career as a lecturer at various institutions across the U.S. and U.K. with research interests in international relations, populism, and the rise of authoritarianism. He also fancies himself a stand-up comedian. Neo-Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo-Academia is also possible through support from Redocracy. Redocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo-Academia is proud to be sponsored by Redocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo-Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. Okay, so you're one third of the Spinoza triad? I am, yep. Yeah? It's just kind of cool and kind of nerdy. I Obviously, I dig it. You said you're one of the other guys is an MMA coach?
1: Absolutely, yes. He is the truly renaissance man of the group, really. He's an MMA coach, he plays blues guitar, and he's a doctor of philosophy.
0: Wow. So we're going to talk about what you and I do now, that we are no longer, I never really was a proper academic, but you were.
1: I was once truly, you know, thinking the big thoughts and saying things to educate people. And, uh, and uh, not now. Well, they're actually not they're not that's not true, because there's a liberating capacity of this, of what we're doing. Actually, I can do more of it now, in a sense, because I can say whatever I like. I don't have to meet any criteria of, of a curriculum. What interests me is what misinterests other people.
0: It's funny you started out by going, I don't do that anymore. And then you go, wait, yes, I do. When did you retire, by the way?
1: A year ago. Just okay. just the halfway through the lockdown, COVID, full on. But that was the tipping point, what they call it, the great resignation. Yes, indeed. People who, people are thinking, retiring, people are thinking, changing jobs. My life has been paused and it didn't look the way I wanted it. So I'll do something else.
0: So why don't you give me a parallel, like a day in the life a year ago, and then a day in the life today, what's the difference?
1: A year ago was a very weird situation because I was teaching online. So students are popping up and they're doing zoom and they're appearing and you're setting them tasks. That was straight but before that years and years would be lecturing and teaching and taking groups to discuss things mainly to do with politics to be honest that was my big topic and a lot of it was to do with american politics so i my specialist area was actually the usa in america okay but interesting I, I, was, I put a fair amount of um cultural studies as well so that came in just just great fun i mean it was uh, it was being paid to follow and pursue your own hobby when i uh, retired We were into the deep lockdown. So the schools and the universities and the colleges closed and people were sent home and it was online, online, online. So at first there was a lag where they had to find the technology and decide how we were going to do this, discover in a sense. A form of teaching online, which is now, well, which should have been more commonplace than it is, really. I mean, one of the curious things about education is a deeply conservative sort of place. It attempts to inculcate people with the values of the past and the learning of the past. At the same time, it's hard to be disruptive and be creative. A lot of the practices in education and academia are really quite conservative.
0: Yeah, that is uh, that ironic thing about it. Where was your head when you were teaching versus when you're podcasting now?
1: Well, teaching life is pursuing your interests delightfully in a way, but a lot of the time being distracted from that. So there's always a feeling of being pulled down some different kind of road. There's a high degree of neoliberalist attitudes to learning. And so there's a lot of targets, a lot of assessment, a lot of things have to be proved, a lot of students have to be fed into the data. And so it's a data driven world, much more than I think it would have been when I first started teaching. And so a lot of it was very bureaucratic, as well as being delightful freedom to pursue your own interests. What's the difference is that the bureaucracy is gone because I don't have any of that anymore. And I'm now free to, uh, to read, walk, pursue interests, both trivial and anything I care to think about. So
0: Interesting. Do you think that what you do now is any less important than what you did before?
1: Or more important? Well, oh, I'm sure the jury's out on that a bit, though in a way, because I've really only embraced the you know, the world of podcasting and internetting and so on in the in in the last year or so, and I, and I enjoy it. So, what the hell is it purely a sort of hobbyish thing? I don't know. You you're a podcaster as well, so I, what are exactly we doing here other than having fun in the days of? teaching, you could aim towards examinations and you had students respond to you and they'd send you a card at the end of the year or they would stay behind at the end of the lesson or lecture and say, well, that was good. And you think, yeah, there's a lot of feedback. So there's not a lot of feedback with this other than surprisingly, people do listen.
0: Yeah. The trouble with that, and I was talking with another person who does philosophy, Greg Sadler. She has a big philosophy YouTube channel and has for 10 years now. He still teaches while he does this. We were talking about that in terms of asynchronous communication and feedback. So first of all, I think with a podcast, a newsletter, anything you're doing, you have to set up a system of feedback, kind of a platform for where people are going to tell you about what they think. Then you have to actually ask them to tell you because... They're not sitting captive in front of you like they would be in a lecture hall. No. And so they're kind of all over the place. And sometimes you'll get a random thought that comes at you kind of out of nowhere. And if you have a really big presence, like Greg does, his YouTube comments are just rife with shenanigans and nothing really useful. (laughs) And then some people just don't get what you're talking about at all. And they'll go off on a on a tangent that you don't know what to do with anymore. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of this kind of medium being a mechanism for teaching or autodidacts to kind of integrate more feedback asynchronously in the real time. There's a lot of opportunity, I think, to do that.
1: With the YouTube feedback, people are self-conscious that they are both commenting on what you've just said. And they're also commenting as a performer themselves. So they now know they're saying something. I wonder whether it is the genuine feedback, as it were. There is genuine feedback, I guess. But there's there's also a sense of it being them, being maybe a bit shocking, maybe a bit surprising. Most people don't leave long and extended comments on YouTube. It's a medium designed for people to make snap judgments. I'm skeptical about the limited nature of the instantaneous feedback from comments.
0: I agree. I think the way that it's set up currently, it is incentivized to be not only incendiary and a snap judgment but very shallow and superficial there is absolutely no incentive for a conversation to carry on or a dialogue the incentive is for the creator the person with the content to put content out that draws in engagement doesn't matter what kind of engagement whether it's quality or not And then even some people in the comments are now getting wise that they need to be in the comments to attract people to their stuff. So it's all a big attention grab. I think at this point, everybody's doing something for attention.
1: You're absolutely right. The look at me, look at me is not conducive to dialogue, is it? Right. And that is this medium that we are engaged in is a very performative one. So we...
0: I don't think it's the medium. I think it's the environment. I mean, if we think about it in terms of like analog to radio, radio was a performance, but podcasting I think has the potential to be a little bit different because there are so many avenues for it. You can kind of say whatever you want to say. We have the potential to really get real and not be performative. But on the other hand, if you want people to listen, there's a bit of performance to it. There's editing, there's, you know, kind of, scheduling, and it's a bit of an art form as well.
1: That is true. I think you're absolutely right. I think there is um, the opportunity to communicate without necessarily the expectation. We, when we first started the philosophy talks, me and my colleagues, Richard and Dan, we said, look, we enjoy this. Let's assume that no one will ever listen and then we won't be disappointed. So we simply captured our own conversation. And surprisingly, people like listening.
0: I agree. I think we have the potential to create in this medium however we see fit. And I think the performance will change over time. You can see it already happening if you kind of follow trends on social media for example on TikTok. People turned to TikTok for authenticity because they were seeing a lot of stuff on Instagram that felt very poised and not real, inauthentic. So they went to TikTok and they saw things that looked very gritty and real. And they thought they were seeing into people's lives. And then now that performance is kind of changing again, like it wants to feel authentic, but it's not. It's like this Baudrillardian kind of pseudo authenticity where they're like, I've got my ring light set up in my car and I want you to think that it is me so excited. I couldn't wait to tell you about something. I'm in my car, guys. So it, it is performance on top of performance at yeah. this point.
1: That is is always the dilemma of the camera? or any form of communication, the essence of all communication is lies. As soon as a camera is aimed at you, you change your face, you put on a different expression, you straighten your back, you see your own reflection in a window. You're immediately feeding back to your own self and performing. Th- that may simply be the part of the human condition. I doubt that we can escape that. And the internet itself is the great model of that. When people, when the internet first started, it's the new public sphere. It's the unmediated medium in some ways. It's highly mediated. It's, uh, who knew that that we'd all be using the word algorithm, but algorithms in some way are manipulating the system. And of course, could be you can only be on it for two minutes and it starts showing you the things that you lingered on. I mean, how sophisticated is that algorithm? You show this the smallest interest, then you get more of that thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of God awful, but, but it's, it's transient. If the internet has shown us anything, it's that. Things come in waves, and the 21st century is going to bring about waves of change, unlike any that we have ever seen, and that the pace at which the change occurs is astounding. Your head will spin. So I think podcasting, it's just kind of getting started, and it's pretty much radio in my opinion, but the opportunity for it in terms of audio and now visual, anytime you involve the senses in more than one way, it's going to, I think catch, it's going to catch fire. It's going to be more interesting. And I think podcasting is still early.
1: Yeah. I think we're at the beginning of something. And I think that's probably why it still has the characteristics of terms of authenticity and experimentation mm-hmm. and amateurism. And the amateurism mm-hmm. is always a good sign. I was astonished how easy it was to podcast really. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time we discovered a, a podcast app and, well, I just just press a button and off I go with Well, I don't need a studio or something. Right. Well, the access was so easy. And it was quite, um quite amazing. Right. <laughs> uh, I wonder if, if we're right about the way the media goes, there's a danger that over time it'll become consumed by greater and greater levels of commercial domination. That's what we'll see. Hopefully that doesn't happen.
0: Well, I think it is and it will, but it, it always kind of comes full circle. Like look at TV, for example, nobody could be on TV. TV got very exclusive and then reality TV came through and burst onto the scene. And now look at Netflix. Netflix just throws dollars at producers and people to make content now. And same thing is happening with, you know, like we said, TikTok and YouTube and all these places. You can be on TV broadcast out to anybody now. So it goes in these kind of waves where it oscillates between being exclusive and cool and then everybody's doing it and then it's no longer cool. And then the medium kind of shifts and changes. Which is probably a good segue for what we decided, what we were going to talk about. Oh,
1: right. Excellent. Yes. (laughs) We
0: We wanted to talk about your expertise, you said, was kind of populism, right? And politics and the philosophy of politics. Is it possible that we have an academic populism arising? Knowledge-based populism where information is the resource and it's now democratized and there is an elite and then there is the everyday man and people want the information but they don't want it from the elites they want it for themselves and they want to use it how they want to use it and see it how they want to see it
1: i think that's true i think, I think that was true with the podcast that i do the, the philosophy podcast It is an attempt to say look you at home do you at home people at home are ordinary people because they're at home Anyway, you at home can listen to philosophy and not feel intimidated by it. It it shouldn't be the realm of philosophers. Now, I've had different reactions to that. Some people listen to our podcast. They say, like, it needs sort of explanation and footnotes and things. And say sometimes when you refer to things, what is you exactly talking about? And then then it becomes a lecture. There's lots of that on the internet. There's lots of availability of education. That does democratize education. I mean, I like to think of the idea that people can, if they wish, engage in just about anything on the internet. It's there for you. I mean, the astonishing thing about YouTube, where if you want to carry out any practical procedure, or find about any particular thing, changing a plug, decorating a bathroom, whatever, Mm -hmm. there's someone who's going to demonstrate that to you from making a cake. And it's true of almost every aspect of Western philosophy as well. There'll be someone there who done a five minute, 10 minute, a 30 second version of that particular form.
0: Yeah, like I just saw a meme today in a Facebook group, and it was what people think Nietzsche was like. And he's got sunglasses on. He's like, "God is dead." And then it was like, what Nietzsche's writing is actually like. And he's like crying, and he's like, "Oh fuck!" Like now I got to come up with this Uberbench concept so people just don't go buck wild. Like he was tortured about it. He went insane. I mean, the syphilis didn't help, but yeah, people have access to levels of information. And they can listen to your podcast and go, what is he talking about here? What is this? And dig deeper, as deep as they like with it. If we think about what I'm doing on this podcast, I'm kind of turning academia inside out and looking at all the levels of it and seeing if it reflects outside. So the aspects I often think of are the creation of knowledge, Mm -hmm. the maintenance of that knowledge that was created, kind of the validation, processing and storage and then the dissemination. And when I think about what's available on the internet, it's a lot of dissemination of information, but what about the creation? So in certain disciplines, you know, my discipline, for example, biology, you can't really create new knowledge without experimentation. And where science is now, the experimentation is largely sequestered to places with large instrumentation and things like that. So I can't just go test a biological theory now. But in other types of knowledge work, you can take a new idea if there is such a thing and play with it and create new knowledge right now, right here.
1: Certainly, that was one of the earliest debates in philosophy between people like Aristotle and all the way through, really, between those who value the external world. That's where knowledge is to be found. You're going to find things of truth via observation and experimentation. Or those who say, well, the external world actually is the most unreliable place to try and find any kind of truth. The real truth, if there's any at all, and the only truth you can ever rely on is what goes on in your head. You know, I think therefore I am. So what you're thinking may be true. The external world could often not be true. That's really the sort of debate we're having now really about the hierarchic knowledge really. A thoughtful person thinking something creative, the poet, the playwright. The philosopher, as opposed to the experimental scientist, and they they will at times find I think difficult to understand each other. Always, what could be less real than sitting in a room reflecting on things, and what could be less uh, cerebral than simply pottering away with a machine? Right, there is that collision of essentially the external and internal world, and the mind world division in philosophy.
0: Right, and I think scientists are doing everything they can. To categorize and quantify the world, but there is a limit that we're finding. And I've been very into physics lately, thinking about this and talking about it a lot. But on the biology side of things, we don't have that problem. And biology, we don't really worry about the philosophy of science too much. We're Popperian, right? But when you go outside of science, like we do our work in the lab, do to do, do, and then we go outside and we see the world and we're like completely unscientific. We don't apply anything of our science to how we move through the world. And we're seeing kind of a collision in the biomedical sciences with more postmodern philosophy. And I think that's kind of where biologists are first interacting with any kind of real philosophy is when people accuse them of being postmodernists because they want kind of this more inclusive world that they're trying to build, right? Because we all think the woke is a result of postmodernism. I think most people think that. Yeah. And so there, there is a huge disconnect in that world. Um, and that's a weird place I don't really know how to deal with yet. So I've kind of abandoned that and just went straight into the more social sciences, The what we can do outside of the university, kind of like the land you live in.
1: That's true. The world of politics and social science. He's very immediate. When lecturing to students, you find you can think, well, I, I, this morning's going to be fun because I'm going to introduce them to an idea about the um, Foucault and power or something of that kind. Or you're going to introduce them to some notion of the hidden curriculum, and you're going to see them start to realise something they never knew was quite there, and they're going to leave the room slightly altered. Mm-hmm. Was a silly joke. Right. Quite often that is the case, and you can be the guide that changes their view of the world. Probably in the physics lab down the corridor, you can inspire people in all sorts of ways, but it's difficult to do that other than to show them what other people have discovered before they ever got there. Right. They can't be in the room and discover it almost with you for themselves. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's that's interesting. The great privilege, the the social science.
0: I never thought of it like that. There's a certain emotional connection that happens when you're learning social science or you're learning at least a history of what, whatever social science is versus when you're learning the harder sciences. It's a huge abstraction and a huge disconnect in the harder sciences. We don't kind of have trading cards with like dead scientists of the past, really. We don't have like great memes of um, Louis Pasteur. There's nothing to make fun of them about because they don't talk about their ideas. They talk about their discoveries.
1: Yeah. In a sense, also the scientists themselves must all be looking at each other and feel a little jealous of the theoretical physicist right now. Because if you're a biologist or if you're a chemist, you're pulling apart the material fabric of the world in front of people, but you're speculating on the nature of existence. So the, the theoretical physicist has straight up entered the world of the philosopher. And if you yeah. want to speculate about... um multiple worlds or multiverses or, um, holographic representations of the world in such as we might be, if I were de- teaching anything other than social science and politics, it would be, uh, you know, I envy the theoretical physicist and you, I see, do those, too. And you see those on the internet sometimes de- delivering with all, often with wonderful graphics. About, and terrible verbiage. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry for any theoretical physicists that watch this, but Shh, yes. nine times out of 10, they are God. Awful at storytelling. People yeah, don't uh, think in equations, okay?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. When you're thinking, well, okay, Einstein, he thinks of someone falling from a building. He thinks himself, well, of course, for them, the world isn't, they're, they're not falling. The world is coming up directly, rushing up against them. He says, the happiest thought I ever had. Oh, how wonderful to think of that and to readjust your whole understanding of time and space and so on and relativity. Well, on the other hand, he then went home and did an awful lot of mathematics, <laughs> which <laughs> would bore the living daylights out of me, unfortunately. Right. So, yeah,
0: I, Mathematics is something we can do outside the university. So technically, theoretical physicists are pretty detached from the experimentation. I mean, they're theoretical. They're not doing any kind of experimentation. So I think this is an interesting place to kind of talk about the dangers of popularizing information and knowledge and bringing it outside of kind of the hard and fast rules of research and experimentation and even science. Let's talk about populism as it pertains to politics and what are the dangers of populism? What are the benefits?
1: I can link to what you just said and and populism. And that I think is, if you look at the late nineteenth century, early 20th century and the understanding, the popular understanding of Darwinism, Darwin's evolutionary theories and the actual understanding of Darwin's theories, and the way they were embraced, the politicians of the right in the mid-20th century, like the fascists and Hitler and so on, and racists of the 19th century, the eugenicists, get a hold of complete misreading of the evolutionary theory and use it in a populist way. And as you said there, of course, that is the difference between the subtle understanding the complex understanding. You could look at that throughout human history in terms of religion. There's all been two there's been two kind of religions. There's the religion of the, um, of the philosopher, and there's the religion of the, um, what's the religion of philosopher called? Anyway, the- re- Theologist. The, thank you, the theologist. The religion of theologist and the religion of ordinary people, which is about what you eat and what you don't eat, and the ordinary everyday, the quotidian way of dealing with religion, and that, without the full understanding of the subtleties. And the complexities and the contradictions can lead to an awful lot of populist violence in the world. And that's the history of the last 200 and, 300 and 400 years, is the populist adoption of complicated ideas and their manipulation for the purposes that are quite dangerous.
0: Tell me what you think about this, because I've never heard anybody say it. But string theorists are postmodernists, right?
1: Yeah, I guess in the sense that if the underpinning fabric of the universe is highly malleable, interchangeable as it were, there is no narrative to the world of string theory. It is simply... They're
0: relativists, right? They have to be. I mean, they're deterministic relativists. Yes. It's quite absurd, isn't it?
1: That's true. The world of postmodern relativism and postmodernity itself, which suggests, you know, there are no narratives apart from the narrative that there are no narratives. And that prediction or that world of not having clear absolutes becomes itself an absolute.
0: I worry a lot about people's kind of ability to cope with that. it's very dialectic to be able to kind of even consider that possibility
1: yeah i don't think people can cope with it i think that might be one of the central problems of our age is this
0: is Nietzsche. nietzsche's like crying in the right this is why nietzsche's <laughs> crying the complexity. He the
1: and so what will people do in a world of greater complexity uncertainty and greater relativism is they will latch upon those people who offer them a chance of certainty. You would think, wouldn't you, that education would make us all a lot more relativistic, a lot more mm-hmm. open to new ideas, a lot more willing to embrace the kind of Socratic sense of, I don't know. The first piece of knowledge I know is that I don't know things. Sure. I think this is the conundrum of the modern age is after a couple of centuries, particularly in developed countries, of fairly sophisticated education systems. Every human being has the world's greatest library in their pocket on their phone. And yet, there's greater sense of uncertainty and a greater retreat into simplicity and simplifications and generalizations.
0: It's it's the craziest paradox of our age, truly. And it's sophomoric. And that's the only way I can explain the reason why we go to science looking for certainty. And then, of course, some of us will just drill down. And then the other ones of us are kind of like, yeah, but this is like a tiny hole we're digging. Like, I... I feel really scared because I don't have any clue what's going on outside of this hole. And so if you're anything like me, you kind of leave, which I did. I left science and go, I don't know shit about philosophy. <laughs> and I like woke up and I was like, hey, guys, do we care about philosophy? No, we do not. Right. So I understand the retreat into certainty. But the problem is some of us are retreating into like the certainty of science, which is not what we're supposed to do. Science is not about certainty. Nothing. It's about exploration, curiosity, questioning, but not knowing.
1: Completely. Hopefully that's the first lesson of all. You won't arrive at conclusions. You'll simply arrive at more questions.
0: It's not. I feel like in college it was, here's a Punnett square. I studied polar bears and I need someone to dissect squirrel poop after school. Can you come to the lab? And I was like, oh, sure. Yeah, sounds cool. Went and they handed me a few wayboats and they were like, all right, so cut these things up and weigh them. We need to get the hormones. We're studying hormones at a we really don't know what the fuck we're doing or why no philosophical kind of like soft entry it was like we got shit to do was the way that they presented science to me i was like okay i'm here to do it
1: so you you did just admit that you found dissecting squirrel poop as cool
0: I was so excited. I can't even begin to tell you. I think it was sold to me in a very cool way, but it was sold to me under the guise of certainty. Like this woman was like, I go to the Arctic and I'm studying polar bears because the polar bears are going to be gone. We have to do something about it. It was sold under the guise of advocacy and a certitude that we had to do something. And this is, I think, a lot of what the modern university is doing is selling us on a way to live, not necessarily how to think about living, but this is how you live, and then we just do it.
1: I can do with sitting in a maths lesson, and I've already admitted that i not great at the big maths. The young philosopher, sitting in class thinking, what are numbers? Are they social constructs? Do, do you discover numbers, or are they, are they existing in the world, external to human experience? Does a triangle exist, even if no humans exist on the planet? Is it still there, or does it require a definition of angles and such, like that doesn't get you anywhere at passing a maths exam.
0: <laughs> True. It's actually, I think, counterproductive.
1: Completely <laughs> counterproductive, yeah, and very much Gibbs, stop staring out of the window and get on with the maths.
0: Yeah, I, but I think this is extended beyond infancy now. We are living longer, slightly. So maybe this is an extended infancy that we're seeing in extended adolescence in college and university. Where we're kind of still grooming people and showing them how to live because there's a lot to know, I guess, about how to live in the modern world. But I question the utility of it, whether the advocacy is really what we need. I don't know if we need to be told how to live anymore. We need the didactic portion, but we need more, I hate to say constructivist, but we need more constructivist kind of education, like build this thing and let's see if it falls down. And if it does fall down, look at that. Like, yes, your idea is shit.
1: Yes, completely. Yeah. Constructive confusion. (laughs) Actually, it's not a bad state to be in. Is somewhat confused. I think that that is that is, that is quite good actually. I think people don't like that. We
0: don't reward it either.
1: It's not going to pass you any exams, and it isn't going to get you the qualifications. So there is a narrowing down of education because education has so many objectives to filter people out for professions, to direct people in certain paths, and the great dilemma of all education between the domination that education offers and the um, liberation that it offers. They can't do both. They can't inculcate you with the values of yesterday at its most extreme somewhere like China where you have re-education camps and so on but in all education there's a degree of that and then you'll hear people say it we want young people to to learn manners we want young people to learn how to be disciplined we want young people to have the skills of tomorrow and yet at the same time we want them to be questioning and revolutionary and that, that you can't do both
0: the irony of all this is I was thinking about Heidegger uh, talking about optimization and technology for technology's sake We've kind of optimized ourselves out of existence. If we just keep trying to do better and do better and do better and do better, and then let's say, you know, we've reached a point where we don't need to work, we don't have any of that stuff, what's left? All of our optimizing and, and whatever we've kind of groomed our brains to become is no longer useful in the world in
1: any way. Someone said to me once um, in 1610 when Shakespeare was around and he's producing his last plays, it's in the court of King James, and they are, and around him there's Christopher Marlowe and a whole range of other playwrights, and it's the English Renaissance. Yet the actual population of London is barely larger than a small London borough today, or even more dramatic, Athens in 4th century BC. Tiny little place really, not much larger than a modest country town in England today, so we have teeming millions of people today. Curiously. There isn't, I don't know whether I agree with what I'm allowed to say now, I've talked myself out of it, but I I think that there isn't that intensity of explosive questioning, I would say. Surprising thing about our world in all its diversity is it's curious conformity.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So what do you mean you've talked yourself
1: out of it? We don't live in a world of no creativity, clearly. I can't have it both ways. I can't be terrified by the degree of change and say there's a limited amount of creativity around.
0: I think you can, though. I think this entire conversation has really gotten quite absurd because <laughs> we're, we are not doing something new here. We're doing radio. So it's like, yeah, it's creative in a sense, but really there's nothing new under the sun. This is why people don't study philosophy, though. Is it? It's, this is not amateur hour, I don't think, the kind of questions. Probably not Spinoza Triad either.
1: Oh, I don't know. We talk a lot of nonsense, really,
0: honestly. Yeah, but don't you think that certain people who have a large body of knowledge about a certain topic, even when they kind of just bullshit, it's a lot.
1: Yes, I'm perfectly capable of the mass production of nonsense.
0: (laughs) 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 And so I think we've answered, that's what we do here. No, um, yeah,
1: there we are. And that's, 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 that's what we do. Creative confusion
0: Yeah. So. Getting back to kind of populism and uh, democratization of information. So, in the US, we have a republic, right? And I've heard it said that you wouldn't be able to have populism without a republic. Like, representative democracy is what causes populism because the government is not actually representing the people directly.
1: Absolutely. I think those that feared democracy and that for much of human history and indeed much of the world today democracy is going to be seen as either a luxury or very dangerous, even though it will be widely lauded as the way to go and and, an aspiration for many countries. I think China is a little bit different now. You talk about what their view is, Mm -hmm. but generally speaking, since the enlightenment, certainly you've got the view that democracy is an aspiration, (laughs) but also it will be seen as dangerous and it will be seen as a luxury. Alongside the democracy are the people and the people, you know. Are, are open to persuasion. There's a, there's a, one of the dialogues of Plato, the, the, he talks to a rhetorician, the great, the great Gorgias, who's the most brilliant persuader of rhetoric you could possibly imagine, but that's a superstar of his day, the Gorgias. People pay him tons of money to teach young men how to persuade people to do things. And Plato gets Socrates to ask him, is persuasion good if you're persuading people to do things that aren't good, or must you persuade people? to do good, for it to be a good thing. What is the skill of persuasion? <laughs> and that could echo down the next two millennia to today. And as I'm thinking about the gorgeous day, I thought, well, that's in a sense, a question we're asking ourselves throughout the history of democracy. And especially in the United States right now, <laughs> the power of persuasion and the powerful tools of persuasion available to people, not just a clever rhetorician using a few tricks and lists and flourishes, but actually the manipulation of a media that could be enormously persuasive, is liable to populism. Uh-huh. So I think democracy, democracies, yes, democracies have hardwired into them a danger of populism. What's going on in China? I think is a different kind of populism. Uh-huh. Now, populism of the authoritarian uh-huh. who says, I don't pretend to respond to your needs or respond to any kind of sense of legitimacy. I'm legitimated by my own ability to know what's best for you. And that, I think, leads to a question about whether people psychologically have tended always to want to defer to strong leaders. And I suspect that is an unfortunate tendency among us.
0: I think you're right. It's an oscillation that we go through. And I think we get a little too much freedom. And we're like, I need safety of a guru. You said there's a difference between kind of authoritarian populism and democratic or republic populism. Let me see if I understand this correctly. The democratic type of populism, what manifests is, I can do it for myself, and I don't need anybody to tell me how to do it, and thus they fuck up. Or under authoritarian populism, it's kind of like, I can do it for myself, but only with your help. Like this overarching kind of, I need a Leviathan kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Leviathan. I think it's the desire of human beings to externalize their own needs so the leader becomes the, the the means by which i can escape my inability to do all the things that us frail human beings want to do which is mostly live forever and stay young forever and so on and the innate fears of human life can be externalized into someone someone else will solve that for me Imagine a kind of spectrum of populism politicians have been kissing babies Playing the game of selling themselves ever since the first politician ever decided they need to get elected. I mean, this is probably true that the moment you said there's a race here and you've got to get those people to vote for you. So Plato says to Gorgias, you know, you can persuade people, but is that a good thing? Right. It's because Plato's worried about democracy. He's worried he doesn't really think that's a particularly good idea.
0: Well, well, look at what happened with Tiberius Gracchus. I mean, it didn't turn out so well for him. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
1: The, the last 2,000 years is littered with failed democracies and examples of the people turning on other people in quite a sort of venomous kind of way. So democracy is really quite dangerous. Mm-hmm. Was it Winston Churchill said, best argument against democracy is five minutes conversation with the average voter? <laughs> and you have to embrace the fact that ordinary folk, fearful, misinformed, ill-informed people will have the power to vote and be persuaded by people of greater capacity than them to persuade. So alongside democracy goes populism. Right. It's just how intense and how dangerous that populism it becomes.
0: Well, and I think to draw the parallel with the academic populism, alongside with education comes misinformation, kind of the same thing, you give people just enough information, they're going to fuck it up. Yeah. So in this case, I, I wonder, is the university system itself kind of the leviathan?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it takes me back to that thought I had earlier, I guess, that education has a tendency to both control or dominate and liberate. And, uh, and um populists will tend to want to, the first thing they'll do almost is say something about education and the, how we should teach people differently or change the curriculum or, um, direct people away from, direct people in a direction, in a channel that you'd want them to be channeled into. The education system has become Leviathan-like.
0: I often think about this when I mention Hobbes that I'm kind of anti-Leviathan. I don't want to believe that we need this, but a lot of times I think we are our own Leviathan, our own nature. What more Leviathan do we need than the temperamental aspect of our own nature? The bad things we can do. We have the capacity to wipe out our entire species, the entire planet at this point. What's more dangerous than that? Us. Absolutely. Yes. We're the Leviathan.
1: Completely. And that dispiriting, as I said, human history shouldn't go this way, should it? It, We should be becoming more peaceful, more enlightened. And you can argue to some degree we have. But we are surprisingly violent and surprisingly open to... Ignorant persuasion than we really should be, given the level of education and given the level of information we have available to us.
0: I don't know. I disagree on that. I think it's just been sh- too short of a time with this amount of information. I mean, the internet, hey, well, we're talking the 80s, people have is starting to have PCs. And in the course of human history, several hundred thousand years, we're supposed to learn how to consume all this information and not blow each other up in just a couple of years.
1: Yes, yeah, so our fair point. Did you give us some breaks, John? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. I'm just, you know When you get to a certain age, you you know, you think to yourself, for goodness sake, why haven't we got there now? I haven't got that long left to see it get better. <laughs> The internet is like the, you know, that um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Typical Douglas Adams kind of humor. He says, well, we've discovered the Babel fish. You put this little fish in your ear and everything you can understand, everyone's communication and it takes away all the barriers and takes away all the misunderstandings that people have had with each other. And this led to the greatest level of violence and destruction in the universe.
0: Yeah, it's a paradox. I mean, it's just the way that it is, you know, and I think the most fun part of this for me doing podcasting now and kind of walking away from like the severity of a formal academic investigation, which we need it. We need people to continue to do that. You know, I think it's, it stands, but I think people who like to, uh, have a bit of conjecture don't belong in academia. Maybe we can partner with those folks, but we are not the ones to be doing the experiments, to be doing the tedious stuff. You know, we, we like to have fun, you know, there's some changing aspect of the university that I'm trying to kind of get at here that we're not using the information the right way. And I think the university system is a big part of that. How we're using it is all fucked up.
1: Yeah. uh I think within, we, we, we mentioned well, uh, uh, education becomes kind of Leviathan like and you know, institutionalized. And of course, that's partly because education becomes an institution so that it has to protect its own ways of doing things, its own received wisdoms, and so on. So, in that sense, the hierarchy of knowledge, things that are important and not important, and resisting change again, it's a conservative institution as well as being a revolutionary institution potentially. And I was talking to someone the other day and I said, oh, no, a few years ago, possibly, that why aren't students in Britain camping out in the campuses and throwing stones at policemen. They really should, that's really what they should be doing. You know, if you're young and you're at university and you're studying all sorts of social sciences and philosophy, you shouldn't be a bit angry, shouldn't you, about the world you live in? First thing should happen is a bit of stone throwing and no, they're not. They're in, they're in the library researching their careers and planning their PhDs and going around networking to get good jobs. And I think it was very disappointing, (laughs) very disappointing young people. You need to be Uh a bit more um, rebellious.
0: That is interesting that you say that because you're absolutely right. There's a big switch. Whereas back, I think, you know, 70s, that's what they were doing. They were throwing stones because... They weren't worried about getting a career after college because at that point, college was largely the thing that was going to get them a career. Now it's not about whether you go to college. That's just a box you have to check. It's about everything you do besides that that's going to get you a job. And so we kind of reversed the roles. Yeah. So now we have these people who are mid-career. The soul has been sucked out of them because they never went through their rebellious phase necessarily. So now they're in the middle of this corporate awful career or whatever career they've, they have to be part of this huge system and they're waking up and they're going, fuck, I want to throw rocks now. And, uh, (laughs) before it was like the young people throwing rocks and then they'd make change, but we're kind of stuck. I,
1: I think we've reached a sort of breakthrough there, actually. That may well be it. It may be, you know, the old film network where he throws the windows open and says, I'm as mad as hell or whatever. You know, maybe that is what's going on in... Trumpian world, and in the world of Boris Johnson, his people of a certain age say, you know, not that they didn't rebel enough. So now they're going to vote for Brexit. We're going to leave the EU. It's a mad thing to do. It's completely insane to leave the EU It's a sensible institution, but we're going to break that. We're going to thump the television set. I remember someone being interviewed on one of those vox pop things in the street. And they said, well, why did you, you did you vote in the referendum for Brexit? And he said, Oh, yeah. I voted for Brexit. He said, well, why, why is that? He said, well. Because everything around here, he said, it's kind of broken. Well, yes, you're angry. You're angry. Because I think that's not a bad description of the world you live in. A lot of things are very broken and you should be angry about it. So you're going to do something an incoherent, act of almost self destruction and vote to leave the EU. Yeah,
0: it's quite adolescent, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. It's thumping the television set, it's, it's yeah. walking off with balls. It's the kind of politics which is anti-politics, which you see a lot of in the United (laughs) States, we want to elect this massively extraordinary property developer who's lived a life of elite, (laughs) elite disconnection from the real world was that sent him to Washington to get rid of the elites.
0: Well, it's because he's a good talker. That's really all it is. He
1: is. He is the gorgeous of our day. He has
0: the, he's the goodest talker. He has the (laughs) best words. I mean, truthfully, like, I think, you know, it's it's weird because people have said to me lately, since I've started podcasting, like, I love your voice. And I just did a podcast with someone, um, Wayne, actually, I saw you on his podcast. He was like, your voice comes through so strong in your writing. Like, I'm meeting you and it's just like that. And I just thought this is what it takes is to be able to kind of perform in a way that catches people. That's what Trump does. So I could do a whole bunch of shit that nobody will ever care about. But it's how I talk to you that's going to matter, you
1: know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, history is littered with very clever politicians, good people, and they were failed at being good, at persuading. And you you think, it's well, of course, that is the, that's what Plato's arguing about 2000 years ago, the ability to persuade isn't the same as being a good person. So the good life is more than being able to persuade other people. Persuading other people is a kind of violence. To be persuasive is to try and disconnect people from their own will and bend them to yours. So it's a form of manipulation. Uh, Not that we'd all wouldn't be glad to be great persuaders, I guess.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that goes back to kind of the lady who persuaded me to cut up squirrel poop. Um, she was like, this is how you need to live. And this is how you're going to get there. And that's kind of, I think where we are right now. I think we've all been persuaded that this is the best possible outcome. Some of us don't feel that way. Some of us want to burn the shit down. But some of us feel that this is the best possible outcome, so don't rock the boat. You know, we're kind of stuck there, aren't we? We're stuck with a bunch of boat rockers and people who are trying to kill the boat rockers. And the whole thing is just...
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it, we, we do live in a very confusing time. And sometimes, uh, from taking a philosophical point of view, you can seem like standing on the deck of the Titanic wondering whether ricebergs are were a social construct. We're going there, that it's happening, and maybe we should do something about it. So uh, the urgency to try and do something is mm-hmm. misdirected so easily. Yeah. That's what we are seeing.
0: Yeah, we have that. I think that's exactly what the university is kind of doing more than anything, is creating, like you said, an assembly line of people who need to sit in the library and research their careers. And then maybe someday you'll be able to retire and have a podcast.
1: Yeah. yeah, And, and when you're writing your PhD, you're thinking about the way that will lead to publication. And when you're making your, when you're doing your degree, you're thinking about how that will get you a, an application to a grant so that you can do your PhD and so on. There's always a kind of instrumentalism in education. I noticed that increasingly over the years, students would, almost on, almost on day one of any course, say, will this come up in the exam? As "No, know, we're just digressing here. This may be, this may not be important at all. In which case, pens go down and
0: <laughs> so that brings up a good point because there are some students i'm sure that you've had that genuinely want to hear your perspective they come to class and they're like i can't wait to hear what does he say about this and what does he say about that i think those are the people that listen to our podcast now
1: yeah again i hope this isn't a vanity exercise, but it is this to a degree but then again human life is energy exercise so.
0: yeah i don't know if it's a vanity exercise but i think you always gave your lectures with those people in mind that would come up and be like, I really like this, or they had something to say, right? You were hoping for them.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, my aspiration in giving a lecture always, whether it was a certain degree of vanity as well, I don't know whether it is that, you have to have it in a way, was that we would, they would leave the room changed. Very, you're going to experience this and leave altered. And um, there was enough of that, I think. Well, it was partly the advantage of being there at the right time. If you're with young people, when they're opening their minds to the world, that's a great privilege. And it's mm-hmm. why you mustn't be careful not to misuse. You can be the person that is standing at the door and get the credit for opening it for them. That's very nice. And it was indeed, absolutely. I know I completely aspired to change the way they thought about the world. I think, I think you've got to be that ambitious really. Yeah. When you're trying to teach.
0: So, I mean, if you think this is about vanity, then that was about vanity just as much.
1: Initially, yes.
0: You know, and I think the only thing that's different is the institution that we're talking about. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the institutions that it, uh, and the institutions of our society that are so diverse, so extraordinary, so changing, and as I said, so conservative uh, earlier yeah, and so controlling as well. And that difficulty of divorcing yourself from those things. I used to say to my students, when things look ordinary. That's obviously the way it should be. That's when you need to be wary. That's where power is operating. And power in our society, power will be found in the expectation that you should do that because it's just common sense. And that phrase, common sense, is the most controlling of all ideas. I know I'm talking about the dominant ideology of a society, but then nonetheless, it surrounds us.
0: Well, it's contextual. I mean, the dominant ideology of society is why we do anything. It's why we're actually doing this podcast right now.
1: Yeah, and it's almost impossible to stand outside of yourself and look back in. You can't stand outside of society. We are, as we sit here, me and you, are as much part of the the sea within which we swim as anyone else. We don't like to think that. We like to think maybe we can think ourselves out.
0: Yeah, this is water. I mean, we're just, we think we're in the counter current, but this is still water. We just swim along. (laughs) We're just swimming. (laughs) This was really fun. I really appreciate you coming and I think. We're gonna to have to do more of this. I had so many ideas and thoughts so when we were talking that we could just-
1: Yeah. Hopefully, what happens after any good conversation, it always happens to me after a good conversation, is a little while later, you're thinking of things you should have said.
0: Yes, always. Thanks for joining us here on Neo-Academia, where next episode, we'll continue to explore the shifting walls of the Ivory Tower. You can see the full video of this episode on YouTube and sign up to receive episodes, show notes, readocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theorygang.io.